Hello, my friends. It's Ryan from the Prolific Creator Podcast. Now, many of you have asked, hey, Ryan, how do I support the show? Well, I finally listened. Starting today, you can subscribe to the Prolific Creator Plus on ACAST Plus for $3 a month. That's less than a cup of coffee. No apps to download and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Get access to the entire archive of Prolific Creator Awesomeness. Over 160 episodes going back to 2017. Yes, that's right, my friends. A plethora of information and inspiration, tips, tricks, and interviews to get your art and work into the world. Remember those ads? Say bye, bye, bye. Wait, there's more. For $5 a month, you can get access to the full prolific creator experience. This includes the full archives, early access to episodes, listener Q&A, book and movie reviews, and interviews not for the public, and perhaps any other awesomeness I might do on the microphone. Sounds awesome, right? Yeah, it does, Ryan. If you want to listen for free, you'll notice the last 50 episodes or so will always be available wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, by subscribing today, you don't have to download any new apps, and you can simply keep listening on the podcast platform you prefer. Cool. Okay. Cool. Thanks for your love and support in advance. Simply click on the link in the show notes or on my website, and it'll take you where you need to go. Now on to the show. Looking back eight years, I don't know how that guy made it at all because he <laughs> lacked a lot of skills. Um, there was there was so much he did not know about writing uh, that I don't know how he figured it out. I don't know how he survived until he figured it out. Because um, I, I do it a lot better now, even from the business side, but then also just in terms of story creation. Uh, some of it was just figuring out how to write, like how to tell a story well. And the only way to get there is to write badly long enough that you figure out what's bad and then how to make it good. Hey, it's Ryan and welcome to the prolific creator where we reflect on life and art and see what sticks. And today, my friends, I'm so excited to talk to Jay Wilburn. Jay is a full-time writer in South Carolina he is a prolific writer of horror and speculative fiction. He is a great human. He is a man of faith. And also in 2017, he had a life-changing kidney transplant that has literally kept him alive. That's why we call him Captain Three Kidneys. Jay has been a friend for a long time. He's a podcaster. He's a YouTuber. He does all kinds of stuff. And I'm so excited to share this interview with you. We talk about calling into creative work how do we know what we're supposed to be doing with our lives we talk about faith we talk about writing with health issues how to how to work through that and jay has been a great inspiration to me over the years uh, just as he's dealt with a lot of things in his life and how he's navigated those things how he works through those things and we talk a lot about that this is just an action-packed interview and i'm excited to share this with you today on the prolific creator now one thing i do have to say before i share this interview with you is this was uh, recorded and this interview took place on an old project, an old podcast project that didn't really go anywhere. And But it was such a good interview I wanted to share with you because I feel like it, it fits really well with this community and the people that enjoy uh, this show and uh, the things we're trying to create. So uh, so if you hear references to the old podcast, Common Grace Project or other things, uh, don't be alarmed. That's just what that is. Uh, but you're going to really enjoy me chatting with prolific creator, prolific writer, Jay Wilburn. So enjoy our chat. 
Well, hey, welcome everyone. So excited today to have Jay Wilburn on the show, author, writer, and just an overall good human. So, hey, Jay, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, Jay is a uh, long, can we say friends? I know, you know, we've never, yeah, we're friends. We never met in person, but you know, if you're Twitter friends or, you know, you've interviewed each other, I think you count as friends, right? Yeah, we're friends. Yeah, we're friends. Yeah. And, uh, no, I love, love, uh, Jay, love what he's doing as far as writing and, uh, so glad to have him on the show again. And I know we had him on the show in the, for the prolific writer, but now he's on the common grace project. And so looking forward to hearing his, uh, perspectives on faith and writing and all that good stuff. And, um, I, Jay, I've really always appreciated just your your angle. You have your own podcast, um, uh, the Faith Matters Podcast, and um, just your 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 wisdom, your thoughts on on writing in general, but also faith and things like that. And um, and I want to just open our time and just ask you, why do you write? Um, you know, you started about eight years ago full time, but you know, what what right. kind of was your impetus to just just go for it? Uh, well, I started writing badly when I was a kid. So I, I, many people do. I was, you know, doing imitations of J.R.R. Token stuff and then later imitations of the sci-fi writers I, I liked. I really didn't get into horror much until high school. I always thought of it as something that uh, wasn't for me necessarily. It wasn't really a faith thing. It was just, um, you know, my, my predispositions about what horror was. <clears throat> and then I, I connected to Stephen King about halfway through high school and started reading a lot of his stuff and then kind of graduated into other horror later. Um, zombies were really the thing that kind of got me in. So it was more of like an apocalyptic connection than it was specifically horror uh, that got me writing. And um, so Stephen King's The Stand really connected with me and altered the way I just thought about the universe and, and the world. And then zombie movies uh, I really enjoyed for the same reasons. So when I was re- originally writing and you know the first short story i was actually paid for these were zombie stories and i kind of expanded into other areas after that writing steampunk and and writing other things like that um but it's kind of it was kind of like a dream deferred sort of thing i guess uh for much of my adult life i enjoyed uh i kind of set writing aside and i enjoyed reading um and just kind of went along with the with jobs i didn't enjoy anymore and that kind of thing uh, and once I started, you know, dabbling in writing again and and making money at it, um, it, it sort of awakened like what what my life was always supposed to be about. I think like like what I was meant to do, um, the way my brain was hardwired to operate. It was it was like all of that was reawakened, and then um, being able to go full time with it was kind of a confirmation of um, really just seeking my life's purpose. Whether you, you take that as a a faith-based message or even just a secular idea of like um, being true to who you are. Mm-hmm. No, and I think that's a, that's an important piece of kind of distinguishing, you know, what, what we're supposed to do. You know, maybe there is one thing, maybe there's multiple things. Maybe there's, yeah. I mean, how, how many writers do we know that, you know, even myself, I mean, I, I have a, you know, other income. I don't have to solely rely on my writing income, but, mm-hmm. um, but you know, they, they just, they do it and they do it on the side and they do it well and they, wouldn't stop doing it even if they didn't make a, a nickel doing it. Um, right. and that's actually something I'd love to explore with you a little further as far as, you know, calling and vocation and how do you know, uh, you know, what I'm supposed to do. Maybe it is writing, maybe, it, maybe it's not, but you know, how do you, how do you kind of figure that out? Um, you know, sometimes it's opportunity. Sometimes it's just luck. Sometimes it's prayer. Sometimes it's, you know, direct heard a voice in your head, you know, whatever it is. Um, but I wanted to, uh, 
kind of attack that a little bit. I, I loved your article. You did kind of a fun thing where you wrote an article about seven or eight years ago, kind of your journey into full-time writing, I think on Lit Reactor. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of revisited that, which I thought was fun. Uh, on, you can go check it out. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, okay. Jay's, Jay's video on that. Um, and just kind of reflecting back eight years later saying, okay, what have I learned, you know, as far as going full-time as a writer and, uh, you know, how it began and, and things like that. So g- give us just a little like cliff notes version of what kind of led you, you know, kind of taking the full leap into full-time writing and what were the kind of circumstances and also just some of the things you've kind of learned along the way. Okay. Um, I really had no excuse to do it. So like all the metrics that would say, this is a good idea. I had none of that. So like <laughs> every accomplishment that I could put down as, as a resume item and say, okay, this justifies going full-time. All that stuff came after. Um, so I, I really had no good plan and um, nobody that was in my situation should have done it, but I, I did it anyway and it worked. Um, it, it be, the, the impetus of it being able to quit my teaching job was that my second son uh, had started having seizures. He was only one or two years old at the time. Um, and, uh, we, we couldn't get him to stop. So we were constantly in the hospital. Uh, every time he got a fever, he had a seizure. And so, uh, anytime he was sick, we had to take him out of daycare and keep him at home and watch him. <clears throat> My wife and I both burned up all our sick days. Uh, so every time I had to be away from work, it was costing a lot of money. Uh, so I was actually basically losing money by, by working full time, um, and then after all my sick days were gone, I got sick. And uh, whatever I caught, whether it was the flu or something else, I was down for days. And so we were we were getting to the point of not being able to pay bills uh, situation. A lot of people stepped forward in that moment and helped us out. It was right close to Christmas. And so we moved on into the new year, 2013. And then it was around January. It was the same thing, still having to take days off to keep him well. And I really wasn't enjoying teaching anymore. Um, I I think I was good at it. I think there's enough students and parents that say I'm good at it that I, I could probably make the case. Um, but I always made the joke that I, I really love teaching and I would have loved to have had an opportunity to do it, uh, you know, when you're done with paperwork and everything else you had to get done. Uh, so I, I debated it and – we were going to have to put him on medication. And ironically, I'm actually on seizure medication now for some of the stuff that's happened to me. Um, and I can tell sort of the, the mental drain that comes down on it, kind of like you're at the bottom of the ocean at different times. I, I think I fake it pretty well, um, but it, it does take a mental toll in addition to the transplant meds I'm on. Uh, and, and all that stuff is, is a known quantity. And with him only being one and two, the idea of putting him on the seizure medications and then having that be the defining factor of his development, I, did, I didn't like that at all. Um, but he couldn't stop having fevers because, of course, he was going to daycare. So with the money we were losing and with the price of daycare and a bunch of other factors, I, I presented it to my wife that I, I would quit my job, stay home with them, make a go at making money, um, whatever avenues I could find with, with writing and uh, just get him past that, get him to the age where febrile seizures weren't an issue anymore. So him being sick was the, was the uh, excuse, uh, but I, I really didn't want to teach anymore. Mm-hmm. And, um, the the idea that I gave my wife was, you know, in a year I can go back to teaching. Um, but I, I knew at that point I didn't want to go back. I was going to do anything to not go back. 
Um, and then as time went on, uh, you know, we found different, I sort of diversified my writing and found ways to make it work and that sort of thing. Um, and the further I went on, it kind of became a game of throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what stick stuck. And then, um, uh, being more sophisticated with that idea as I went on, it was kind of trying to find the things other people hadn't tried yet and get to it first and see if you could do something with it. And that still kind of defines where I am with my writing career at this point. And some of those things work and I was able to uh, make a living. Uh, I've reached sort of a point where I'm, uh, I'm pretty much consistently make better money than I did when I was teaching. Um, it's not nearly as consistent, obviously, uh, but uh, I, I guess that's a big marker of success when it comes to the writing world. Mm-hmm. No, and I think that's really helpful because I think obviously your story is very unique and you've had some, you know, external circumstances and, you know, family situations that were, you know, whether it forced you into writing or not, or, or maybe that was, you know, kind of God's way of kind of bringing all those things together using a hard thing to mm-hmm. say, Hey, this is maybe what you're called to do in a way to provide for your family. And, and I love that because I think people need to hear that, that you know, those that would think about, you know, maybe I'm called to write, maybe I'm called to a different job, but sometimes, you know, we're always looking for that formula, you know, it's gotta mm-hmm. be, you know, do a, B and C and then right. obvious, but really everybody's story is different and how they get into it and how they're sustained by it. Uh, so, you know, when you think about writing, I mean, you, you know, you started, you said when you were a kid and you're dabbling here and there and you started reading and then really finding kind of your, your voice and things. Um, you know, what, when you come to the page now and when you, you were kind of forced into, and maybe that's a strong language. I mean, it sounds like you're kind of forced into, I got to make, I got to provide for my family somehow. Mm-hmm. I'm doing this full time. I'm not teaching anymore. Um, you know, where, where did you begin? I mean, where, where, what did like day one, week one, month one look like? I mean, was it, I had a book idea. I needed to write articles for five bucks an article. I mean, what, what was kind of the, the strategy if you had any? I, uh, looking back eight years, I don't know how that guy made it at all because <laughs> he lacked a lot of skills. Um, there was, there was so much he did not know about writing, uh, that I don't know how he figured it out. Uh, I don't know how he survived until he figured it out. Um, because I, I do it a lot better now, even from the business side, but then also just in terms of story creation. Uh, some of it was just figuring out how to write, like how to tell a story well. And the only way to get there is to write badly long enough that you figure out what's bad and then how to make it good. Um, and I do also think that there's an element of uh, sort of that raw talent, that sort of, sort of a core to you that I think is more exposed when you first begin, when you have no idea how to how to put sentences together, right, or what's going to drive an editor crazy about your work when you're just writing um, because you're driven to in the beginning. You, you don't know what makes a story marketable, any of that stuff. Um, I think that that raw element of, of what makes a writer, a writer is more exposed at that point. And then as you kind of become better at the job, you become more refined in the way you tell stories, you figure out what doesn't work, what's cliche, what hasn't been done. Uh, but then you risk, I think, losing that, that raw um, bit of storytelling that you may have had at the beginning. And some of your stories can actually become kind of sated. And I, I kind of feel like I, I was struggling with that maybe midway through my full-time writing career, realizing I would look back at old stories and it would be a combination of two things. One thing would be that I couldn't believe I was writing that badly and sending that to editors. That was embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the second part was that some of those stories just had a raw, um, 
drive to them that some of the stories I was writing at that moment kind of lacked. And it, it bothered me. It bothered me that, that maybe in trying to make a story perfect, I'd lost something in just the, um, the abandonment of, of writing. And so I, as, as I've kind of gotten to a point now, I think I have a pretty good balance of that. I'm not perfect on the form side and I'm not perfect on just the raw emotional side. Uh, but I think I've, I've developed both, uh, to where, um, I, I can consistently write a decent story, not not one that may land with every publisher, uh, but one that I can look at and say, okay, when somebody reads this, they're going to see that I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. No, and it sounds like you're, you know, you think of a craft for any job, you know, you just get better at your craft. I mean, the more you mm-hmm. do it. And I, I think, it, it, you know, it's that 10,000, you know, hour rule. It's, it's, right. just, it's by doing it's, you know, the Beatles played, you know, these little basement shows for, you know, years before they ever were discovered. And it's like, yeah, they learned how to play together. And, you know, right. Tiger Woods and you think of, you know, he hit a lot of golf balls before he, you know, won a major and, uh, you know, you know, and, and it's like, as much as we want this, this magic pill or this magic formula, it's, you know, it's kind of like what Stephen King says, right? It's read a lot, write a lot. I mean, there's yeah. not, a, not a whole lot in between. Um, and, and you, and you, you begin to kind of develop a taste. Um, I think a you, even in, in yourself, you can even, even though we say we're the worst critics of our own work, you kind of know what's good, good storytelling, good writing and what's not. Yeah. Even, even when you know your own stuff's not up to par, you know, there, cause I think you get feedback from editors, you get feedback from readers and you go, Hey, that this doesn't work. Or why do you do this? Or why do you mm-hmm. repetitively, you know, do these things? I have the same thing. My editors, you know, it's like the same, you know, marks on the thing, you know, don't do that. You know, <laughs> that's not, not good. Uh, you know, whatever it is. Um, so, so I, I think that's, you know, when, when we think about, and I, I think, you know, sometimes in the calling piece, it's, we act as if, if we're called to something, we're good at something that it's just going to be easy. Mm. It's just going to come easy. Like we don't have to work at it anymore. We don't, you know, uh, it's ours and we just do it. And it's just, you know, magic writing fairies that come down on our shoulders and, right. you know, um, but like you said, you know, you, you've had health conditions, you, you, you know, health problems and, and, you know, that's a factor and time and family and money and, and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes you just have to write the thing cause you got, you need to make, pay the bills. Right. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to explore that a little bit as far as, um, uh, I, I know you, you mentioned it. Um, people might not know, but you had a, a kidney transplant, uh, mm-hmm. cause you are captain three kidney and, uh, <laughs> affectionately known. And, uh, and I love that part of your story because I think, part of um you didn't really share it specifically and i could be wrong but i think you um part of it was you didn't know how long you'd have to live um and so writing was hey i, I really want to do this and maybe i might not be around that long maybe i should right. you know consider this and that's a that's a real thing so talk us through that just as far as um you know what is it like to to you know deal with suffering pain health conditions, health problems, health issues, you know, as you're a writer and kind of balancing that, what does that look like in kind of your, your world and, you know, uh, still needing to pay the bills, all those kinds of things. Well, I had polycystic kidney disease. I I guess I still have it. It's a genetic disorder and it's, it's what killed my grandmother my father and my brother. Uh, All three of them died from it. Uh, My aunt and one of my uncles have both also been transplanted. They had polycystic kidney disease and they got transplants in time to where they didn't just uh, deteriorate away on, on dialysis. Uh, fortunately, I never had to go on dialysis. I had a live donor. Uh, and if I hadn't had a live donor at the time that I would, I would have gone on dialysis because I was, I was nearly at full kidney failure. Mm-hmm. So a couple months more of not being on dialysis, I probably would have died. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but because I had the live donor lined up, they went ahead and lined up the surgery and kind of brought me back from the brink at that point. Um, so it was an ongoing deteriorating uh, condition. I, I kind of describe it like dying in slow motion. Um, where just gradually and gradually my energy level goes down. You, you constantly get blood tests and see how low your kidney function is and how high your creatinine number is. And you get to a certain number and you're liable to fall into a coma. You get down to a certain uh, kidney function and you're either going on dialysis or dying. Um, so that sort of defined um, my life in a good way, uh, not just when I was uh, full time, but even before that. Uh, but of course, it, it declined as you went along. When I was teaching, I kind of knew that I wasn't going to make it to retirement. It was just sort of one of those givens that, you know, at the age that my father died, the age that my brother died, um, that just chances were, even if I went on dialysis, that I was just going to die in the classroom. So, you know, I had this, you know, the retirement plan kicks in at whatever age, but I wasn't ever going to make that. I was just going to work and earn money for my family and then then die doing something I didn't like. Uh, so I, I sort of was just plotting through at that point. Once I was writing full time, you know, there's still this desperation of um, trying to trying to make just enough money to pay the bills and then repeat again next month. Uh, but it was it was better than than teaching. And uh, for writing, in a sense, there was sort of this desperation of like, okay, I don't have as many years left. So do I actually care about what I'm writing now? Is there anything I want to write before I go? And of course the, I, what I want to write before I go will always be bigger than your life. Even if you're a quite healthy individual, I think. Um, and then it kind of reached a point where we started looking at kidney transplant. And so even then it was, it was not a guarantee that I was going to make it or any of that kind of stuff. And, um, so you're kind of preparing for the surgery knowing that, you know, while it's, you know, death isn't the most likely outcome, it's a possibility. And so you're kind of setting up for what's going to be going on in your family. Then on the other side of, um, of transplants, it feels like a different world. Like I could taste food in a way that I didn't realize I wasn't doing before. Um, I could, I could breathe better. I wasn't cold all the time. Like I had been. And of course you're recovering from a major, major surgery. So you got that going on, but it's still so much better than full kidney failure that you, you almost feel like a different person at that point. And it opened up a different life. Now, again, um, live donor kidney transplant, the, uh, Average is around 13 years. So, like, if I can keep my weight down, I, I may get a little more time. If I'm not compliant with my medicine, I'll get a lot less time. Um, if I keep my blood pressure down, I'll get more time. You know, so there's there's always this game to it. And so now I'm four years in, so I'm looking at, you know, somewhere around nine years or more. Uh, before we, we go back into that. So that kind of defines my life in a different way. I don't quite look at it as, oh, I desperately need to get all this stuff done. Uh, I just kind of get up thankful that I have a day to do X, Y, or Z. I'll get it done or I won't. Um, and there will be a point where I'm done and there'll be some unfinished work. I mean, that's just a given. Uh, but I kind of, you know, when I'm exercising or when I uh, am doing anything else, I kind of, when I, when I don't feel motivated, uh, which just kind of happened a lot, uh, with the pandemic, uh, in terms of exercise, um, my, my go-to is, okay, is nine years enough for you or do you want more? Mm-hmm. And when I, when I don't feel motivated, I can sometimes drive myself to try harder, uh, from that. 
when I was in full kidney failure and, and my primary income at that point was ghostwriting, I was writing 10 and 12,000 words a day at the same time that I was, you know, urinating blood and uh, had trouble staying awake and things like that. After transplant, a lot of the meds I'm on, and especially when I had to go on the seizure med, um, I got some real mental blocks. Uh, so I have, I have a bunch of things that I can't do, uh, a bunch of things that I can't learn just because my brain won't process it. And so I have to do workarounds with that. So I, I write a lot less than that in a day now, even though I'm by all measures healthier. Uh, but it's just sort of like that's the new reality. So either I'll get everything done I want to do in a day or I get up tomorrow and I'll get everything done I can possibly do in that day. Uh, and I think even though may, maybe my situation's more extreme uh, uh, than a lot of people's, I don't think it's that different. I, th- I think it's just it's the same in different ways. So everybody has a thing. Everybody has a thing that's that's hanging on. There's nobody that's perfectly healthy. There's nobody that's in a perfect mental state. There's nobody that's in a perfect life. So whereas mine may make a better story, it's not it's not comparative suffering. So it's not like someone else's life is just blossoming so much better. So they should, they should accomplish more. They're struggling with things too. And it may just not be as obvious. Uh, but I think as writers, we all have the, the barriers and we have to decide, are we going to let them be stop signs? Or are we going to find our way around them? Mm-hmm. No, I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in what you're saying. I mean, the, you know, the psalmist talk about that, you know, give us a heart of wisdom, help us count our days. You know, it's mm-hmm. nobody's guaranteed tomorrow, whether you have, bad kidneys or good kidneys, you know, and that's, I think for all of us, it's, you know, what is my life work? What do I want to contribute? What's the good I want to do? And whether it's through storytelling or taking care of kids or teaching or, or what have you. Um, and, and yet it's like you said, it's, it's not, you know, comparative, but it's like, yeah, we're all, nope. I mean, I can't sit here and go, Oh, you know, 50 years from now, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll be writing away. It's like, you, you know, maybe, maybe not. Right. Um, right. You know, um, most likely not, but who knows? Um, but, uh, you know, I thank you for sharing that, that part of your story, because I think there are a lot of, um, you know, put writing aside, uh, you know, people that are just working jobs, living their lives with, with chronic pain, fatigue, struggle, right. and, and, and yet feel like I, I have, you know, something to, to contribute and, uh, and I want to contribute and, and finding ways to do that regardless. Um, cause I think we're always looking for when I'm healthy enough, when I have the time, when I have the right. money, when I have the fill in the blank when I marry the right person or, you know, find the right friends, then I'll do X, Y, Z. And you realize there's really no better time than now. There's no better time than, you know, and sometimes you have to kind of dip your toe in that. I think that's part of faith too. It's like, Hey, the kid, you know, we got to take care of our, my kid. We don't have the money, but you know, Hey, who knows? I mean, it could, you could have every, you know, situation lined up and it could totally fail too. So it's not yes. like, it's not like, you know, Oh, every opportunity is available to us. You know, everything's gonna go great. That, I mean, my health's great, I mean, but yeah, that could be gone t- tomorrow too. Um, so th- thanks for sharing that, that part of your, your story. Uh, let me, let me talk about this. We both have a, uh, an affection an affinity for, uh, Mr. Stephen King. And, uh, and I've always appreciated some of the things you've written about his books and, <laughs> you know, the influence he's had on you. But I, I, I'm always curious, those that do enjoy his work, um, because I would say for me, I've, I've said this many times publicly, is I, I actually have enjoyed a lot, mo- more of his non, uh, you know, horror stuff. You know, I think some of the great stories, you know, The Body and, you know, mm-hmm. Shawshank and, and um, 
you know, I do love The Stand and I love, you know, uh, The Shining and, and all those great, great stories. But I mean, he's written some just, he's so versatile. And I think some of his, you know, he tells this great story. I remember that hearing that story where he's like in Florida and he, you know, was in the, in the, um, in the grocery store mm-hmm. and an old lady walks up to him and says, are you that, oh, you're that guy, you know, that, um, you know, wrote, write, writes those, you know, scary books or whatever. And, you know, she says, you know, the book I really like is that green mile, you know? And, and he's like, I, you know, I wrote that book. She's like, no, you didn't, you know, that kind yeah. of, um, you know, so I, I think it's just his versatility in writing, but there's something about, you know, him that people are maybe scared of because of the horror part of it. You know, even people of faith, it's like, well, it's too graphic or too this or that. Um, but for you, from your perspective, what, what, what kind of always drew you to his writing and his stories and, and what, what was it about it that kind of, kind of brought you in? Uh, the first book I, uh, ever read by Stephen King was it, which is a pretty heavy horror book. There's some rough stuff in there mm-hmm. and I read it in high school and it was, um, looking back on it now, having read it again recently, uh, there's a lot of stuff that if another author, tried to write it, an editor wouldn't let him get away with it. I mean, there's a lot of broken uh, writing craft rules in there, um, not the least of which being some of the length and, and um, thousand pages. Uh, tangents and things like that. But it actually kind of was the, the length and the tangents that kind of drew me as a reader, like the things that were kind of side to the story and following the characters and caring about the characters and, and things like that. Um, there's just something that fascinated me about it. And it almost had less to do with the horror and more to do with just the storytelling, the voice and, uh, kind of, kind of looking and saying, Oh, this is possible in writing. Um, and I've, I've kind of felt that way again, more recently, recently being, I guess in the last 10 years, when I started exploring more of, of indie writing where, um, the, the stories still kind of go through gatekeepers, but not the same ones, that run um, the big presses and you kind of see, Oh, this is what's possible. Like if, if someone's allowed to just tell whatever story they want, break whatever rules they want, they could do this. Um, I've been rereading all Stephen King's books in order and I'm, I'm hoping to finish by the end of this year. Uh, although that's, that's still going to be kind of a steep order, especially if he keeps writing. Um, right. But reading all his books back to back, it, it points out all the flaws. So like, everything that he does wrong kind of stands out when you read the books back to back in order. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause you can kind of see a bad habit play out over three or four books and they kind of drift away and another bad habit comes in. Um, but it also shows some differences. Uh, I, I didn't realize that uh, I didn't know what cosmic horror was when I, when I was first reading Stephen King and until I started rereading him, I didn't realize how big of an influence that was on his style of horror. Um, I also didn't realize how big of a um, crime fiction writer he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a big, good bit of his crime fiction has supernatural elements, but not all of it. And there's more of it there. And eventually I'm going to write an article about um, the the best lesser known Stephen King novels. So like if, if Stephen King wasn't Stephen King and people didn't know who he was, there's a, a handful of novels uh, that most people don't think about that I think might be considered his best. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's just a bunch of little side stories there that uh, if, if he wasn't the author of the shining and the stand and, and um, you know, the big novels like that, uh, these would be the ones that jump out. Yeah. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot more depth 
uh, to what he does uh, that has, really has nothing to do with horror, just the, the ability to tell a story. And I, I do have to admit my own bias. Uh, I, I'm very forgiving of a Stephen King story. Mm-hmm. So a lot of stuff I might not put up with from, from other authors. I, I just embrace uh, from him and, and, and will take anything mm-hmm. that he writes. Yeah, I, I think, a, you know, a good example of, you know, you're saying stories that maybe people don't, I think are brilliant is like The Long Walk, mm-hmm. um, which is a, uh, he wrote under a pseudonym, uh, Bachman or uh, right. Richard Bachman. Uh, that book is is just brilliant. I mean, just as a piece of literature, it's amazing. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. one storyline that is expanded. It's a short novel, um, but the emotion in that story and the, the, the way he, he taps into kind of the everyday relatability of life being a kid, mm-hmm. being, you know, in a family work, you know, all those kinds of things I think resonates with a lot of people. And I think that's why he probably sells millions of copies too. Is he really does write kind of an every, everyday man, everyday woman mm-hmm. kind of story, right? It's small town. It's, it's just relatable. And it, you know, and it's funny because when you get in it, it's not every page is someone's getting killed or there's blood. Right, right. It's like, it's about trauma and, and abuse and pain and what it's like growing up, you know, I think that's why I always resonated too. you know, when I saw stand by me as a kid, I mean, I was, I was in and I was like, wait, this is a Stephen King book, like a short story. And I read that and I go, this is because this is about growing up, you know, whether you grew up in the you know fifties or eighties or nineties or whatever. Um, and, and it's just relatable. Uh, I've always just appreciated that. And I think we've talked about it too, just the, the spiritual, themes that he deals with, you know, um, faith and doubt and, and good and evil. It just runs through so many, um, so many of his books. Um, I, what's your uh, opinion on, uh, maybe not as, I mean, he sells a lot of books, but did you read revival happen to read revival? I haven't gotten to that one yet. Um, It's fairly new. I mean, not new, it's newer. Um, I I own it. The disservice I'm doing myself with what I'm doing now mm -hmm. is I'm about, I'm I'm around the end of the dark tower series. So two thirds of the way through his work, everything he he's, he's comes out with I buy uh, but because I started this all those new books that I'd probably read the moment I got them are now sitting at the end of the <laughs> shelf waiting for me to get to them so um, I I'm in a way even though I'm reading everything I'm almost behind now because uh, I haven't I haven't hit uh, you know the last few years worth of books so I'm excited to get to some of those but I haven't touched them yet. Mm-hmm. I think I'd love to hear your feedback when you get to it. Cause it's, it's an interesting, you know, I mean, the premise is about kind of a, you know, pastor that has weird powers and, you know, <laughs> and a, a storyline where like it starts, you know, when the, when a kid's young and then it fast forwards and when they're old and they kind of come back together and it's, it's a fascinating story, but, but I feel like it's kind of the epitome of, of King. It's like a character that he's done a bunch of times. Yeah. Um, I hate, hated the ending, like a lot of his books, but um, <laughs> it just kind of left me like, Oh, really? You know, um, I think he just was like, I'm done. I'm good. And he just kind of said the end. Uh, but you know, it, it, it's a really fascinating read, just kind of bringing in some of that good and evil type stuff. Um, so yeah, thanks for, for sharing that part. Um, and you know, and I think when you're, when you're thinking about, you know, if you are a writer, you want to be a writer, um, you know, reading good books, it is, it is, I, I find myself as I get older and I've written some stuff now, it, it's, you come back to some of these stories and you do see the flaws you do see, you know, you, you read it more as a critic sometimes. Yeah. Um, but it's also, I think, a research project. I think you can, you know, read widely so you can kind of see the different ways that people tell stories and, you know, and, and understand they're a product of their time um, and mm-hmm. their place. I mean, you're not going to get away with a thousand page book. You know, that's not a thing <laughs> um, unless you're, you know, the guy who writes the Game of Thrones. But, yeah. um, but you know, that's, it's just not, 
tenable and it's just not people's attention span anymore. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, unless you're Stephen King, you just do it anyways, but um, you know, it, it could be difficult. So, um, so Jay, so when you think about writing, um, you know, you've shared a lot of um, obviously hard things when it comes to your own limitations because of, you know, your kidneys and medication and all that. But, but what would you say just as a, a craft standpoint, you know, you're, you're a full-time writer. This is your calling. It's your vocation. It's what you do to, you know, support your family. What are, what are some other things that you would say are just hard, hard things about writing? Like what makes it difficult? Um, what, at least for you. Uh, a lot of that swings towards the business side now uh, because it is a career for me. Um, the, the, describing the joy of writing is odd because uh, it's it's hard to explain, okay, is it in writing the story? Is it in being done with the story? Is it in going back and figuring out how to make the story work? Um, and so – and then, of course, I think there's a, a missing element that a lot of people don't talk about is that what works for an individual author changes over time. Um, and so the, the author that has a particular way of doing it, a particular time of day, a particular number of words, I think that's more rare than the author that figures out something works for a couple of weeks and then it stops working. And then they have to change, you know, where they work or what time of day they work or um, change the way they sleep so that they can work in the morning or that kind of thing. Uh, and then figuring out, okay, I, I, a couple months ago, I was writing, you know, thousands of words a day. I can't do that now. Uh, it's getting in the way. What's my, what's my word maximum for the day? What can I do? And then that changes again. Um, so I think some of it is, is sort of embracing your own evolution and figuring out what's next. Um, I, I'm, doing, I'm doing writing oddly now because I, I moved on to Twitch. And so uh, I write live on Twitch, which is completely alien to the writing process. It is, it is completely wrong, and it's not the way it should be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do it really well. And one thing I do on Twitch that a lot of, even, even the, the scant number of authors that are on there, it's something I'm able to do that they're not, that I haven't seen anyone else able to do is that while I'm writing a story, I can say it out loud. Mm. Uh, so it's not just a silent watching me write, which again, I, when I first did it, I thought it was going to be like a, like an unwatchable piece of performance art. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it turns out that enough people found it interesting that it kind of caught on and I'm, I'm making some progress there, but it does change the way I write. Uh, like my goriest stories aren't going to be on Twitch. That's going to be stuff I have to, to write off of Twitch. I could probably get away with it, but I, I just, it's just not, it's not, it's not necessarily the thing you do in front of people kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can still do horror. I can still do stories that have cussing in them. I can still do violence and that kind of thing, but I, I change the way I do it. If it's a Twitch story as opposed to door closed story, which is the way you're supposed to write. Um, so, so kind of figuring out like this new author platform and what that means and how that changes writing, um, all of that stuff is difficult. And then from the business side, you know, it's the, it's the idea of, okay, I've started this thing new and now I got to build it up from nothing. And then I got to figure out how it fits into everything else I'm doing. And then when this other stuff I was doing works and it's not working anymore, do I figure out how to make it work? Do I keep beating the dead horse? Do I move on to something else? Is it not right to move on to something else? Because just because it became hard and stopped working, does that mean I'm supposed to leave it behind? And um, then, you know, the idea of what works in writing is, is pretty nebulous uh, because it's difficult to make any money 
uh, and then make enough money to live off of is this whole different peak uh, that's that's out of reach for a lot of people uh, starting out and that kind of thing. So uh, my biggest struggles right now often are on the business side. On the writing side, um, I kind of had to relearn how to write without fear in the first draft, like all the things I've learned about what makes a good story, being able to either just use what, what sits in the subconscious or being able to push it aside just to get the first draft done. Uh, and so to get the first draft done without fear, and then everything that I've learned kind of comes between draft one and draft two. Like I come back and say, okay, I know I have a bad habit of repeating words, so I need to get all that out. And I know I have a bad habit of, especially when I start writing fi- fast, I use the same sentence structure several times in a row. So I got to change that. And then, of course, the normal stuff between first and, and second and third draft where you got to figure out, okay, I realize I put a theme in here, but it's disconnected. So now I need to go through and connect that theme that makes it look like I knew what I was doing at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then kind of figuring out what anchors the story. Like, okay, this story isn't working and I need to figure out why it's not working. And it's not always obvious. Sometimes it's very, very subtle. Um, almost always the ending of my stories need some work. So even when the story is very, very good, usually the ending's not perfect. And a lot of times making it, making it right is, is subtle and small. Um, and then just any number of other things that you just kind of try to figure out as, as an author to, to make the story, make the story work. Uh, whereas it's, it's not real cut and dry all the time, especially if you start writing things that you haven't written before. Mm-hmm. No, those are good. I, I think you're, you're, you're also digging into, you know, it's funny with you know, why I do this podcast is it doesn't matter if you're again, you know, interesting people doing interesting things, whether you're a writer or, you know, a, a professor or whatever. Um, a, a lot of what you're describing is kind of, you know, the evolution of our, our work, our craft. It's, mm-hmm. it's, this used to work, this doesn't work. You know, the way I, I go about, you know, preaching a sermon or write a book or, you know, doing meetings or not doing meetings or, you know, it's, 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 you're, you're always trying to figure out kind of what, what works or, you know, what technology is working or not. Um, I'm curious, you know, just on the Twitch side, of things, um, you know, Twitch is a, I think a mainly like a gaming kind of. Yes, it's primarily a video game right. platform. I'm I'm very much off brand by yeah by going yeah. in there. Um, well, I was just gonna say it was a dumb idea, but I, I didn't want to say that out loud. But um, <laughs> uh, no, but you know, what was kind of the the impetus to to kind of explore just the new way of you know writing in public? Because I actually there's I think there's there's actually a history of people writing in public. I mean, yeah. I, I know, I know some folks that have done that and sh- kind of took the magic in a good way out of writing to say, Hey, like, this isn't just a, you know, unicorn that falls on our shoulder. Like, <laughs> watch me do this, you know, and it's, it's painful and, you know, whatever. But yeah, tell us a little bit about how, how'd you kind of figure that out or decide to do that? Like I mentioned earlier, I think a lot of success in writing comes from figuring out what not everyone else has done yet and then doing it first. And then, uh, so like at one point that was eBooks and of course that's saturated now. And at another point it was, it was Patreon and crowdfunding and, and that's a hard, um, it, it's not out of reach to go in there, but it's, it's a harder uh, step up from what it used to be. And my favorite thing is to find something that not only has not a lot of people gotten into, but even when they see me do it, they can't figure out how I do it. 
And so they, it's not, there, it's not going to be a rush in because there's, there's a steep enough learning curve, um, that, that I get sort of the playground to myself for a while. Um, it was actually Brian Keene, who I follow on Patreon, uh, who suggested that if he were 10 years younger, he would use, he would begin to work on Twitch as an author platform. And so I, I asked him in the chat, like, if you were 10 years on, younger and you were doing this, how would you do it? And he basically described it as sort of a more interactive YouTube channel where you're doing Ask Me Anythings, you're doing interviews, you're doing craft type stuff. So I started experimenting with it. And, you know, over time you learn how to make it better, how to do the overlays and how to do um, – how to um, – uh, do what they call stream to record. So like you, it, it's, it's not, you, you don't want to take a Twitch stream and move it straight to YouTube. It's, it's not going to work. But if you plan the stream as if you were filming a YouTube video, um, then you can take it and edit it into something that you can use on the permanent side, which is how you draw traffic into your site and stuff. And again, Twitch gets to a point where you can monetize. Um, and so, as I, as I moved along each time, I would learn something a little bit more and I would improve what I was doing just a little bit more, not big changes, uh, but just figure out, okay, if I do this, you know, put this in this place or, or do it this way, then, um, it's going to be a, it's going to be, you know, a small percentage better. And so I increased by small percentages, um, and finally reached the first, uh, monetizing level, which is affiliate. And then I've, I've actually started to get subscribers on there. So it's, it's now a monetized platform for me. It's very small, um, compared to like what I make from Patreon or what I make from, uh, self-publishing on Amazon and that kind of thing, but it's growing. Mm-hmm. And so my goal is kind of to, to make that a, um, a primary author platform for me, partly because it feeds up into the other platforms. So uh, the content I create on there, I can move into YouTube. I can, I can use that to enhance my podcast that I already do. And then I can cut clips from that, that I can use on YouTube and on share on my other social media and, and share on Patreon. And so uh, I was able to justify going into it and spending the money on the equipment and that kind of thing with the idea that even if I never got a single viewer, I could feed all the content that I made up into my other platforms. Mm -hmm. And I think by doing that, I also drew a a funnel down into that, into that platform. Uh, So it's very new for me and there's not really a roadmap uh, that's been done out even by other writers that are on there and more successful than me at this point. Uh, but I kind of like that. I think that's the path to success is figuring out where my uniqueness works and then doing it while the, 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 the space is not completely saturated. And at some point it will be, it almost inevitably has to be when you're talking about authors. Uh, but if I really work at it, I might be at a level where I can sustain uh, income from that uh, before everybody else is in, and that just kind of feeds into uh, the the success that I would already have at that point, I guess. Well, I like the idea of, you know, d- diversifying your kind of income stream. You know, I think that's important, too, just as a writer and creator of anything. I mean, you know, if you're just going to, you know, one time it was, you know, the Amazon gold rush, you know, just everybody just get on yeah. Amazon, that's all you need. And then you realize you got to have other, you know, streams and you know, ebook, print, audio, you know, other platforms like you can't you know, YouTube, whatever, like you just have to have, you know, other trickles of, of income if you're going to make right. it. Uh, no, I like that. And I, I think that's the, always the challenge is like, how do you, you know, how can you become first or how do you get into those spaces? Uh, what, what's it been like 
uh, you know, the first time you did it, when you realized like, I'm, I'm doing this like in public, I'm writing a story and people are watching, even if it's a small amount of people, I'm reading it out loud as I'm right. I mean, what did you, did you feel weird? Did you feel exposed? Did you, you know, were you like, is this, you know, terrible, you know, what have you, um, you know, how, how did that go? Um, well, there's, there's kind of two phases. So early on, I only had my laptop computer with the laptop camera, the laptop uh, microphone. And so I was just going on there. I, it was one screen, so I couldn't see everything all at once. It was, it was all kind of a mess. Um, and at that point, I was just doing readings, and I edited this story on there as well. Um, because at that point, the idea of writing on there, it was just alien, and it probably still is. Uh, but I just, there was no way I could figure out, okay, I'm just going to sit there and type a story. So that wasn't even in my mind at that point. And then my laptop camera died. And so I even deleted all the software off my computer and stuff. It was just that little laptop, uh, which really didn't have the bandwidth to, um, to, uh, the processing power to really justify streaming. So it was a very choppy stream and all that. Um, and, and even though, you know, Gaming takes a lot of uh, processing. Uh, just showing myself on camera and showing my screen takes a fraction of that, but it's it's still not nothing. So it, you you need more you need more oomph in your computer than than just your your everyday you know Skype call or whatever. Uh, so I went without it for a long time, and then was thinking more and more about it, and just sort of thought, okay. Uh, can I justify the expense to buy like a real gaming computer, not top of the line, but you know, it's, it's an actual gaming streaming computer Buy an actual webcam buy another screen. So I can have, you know, my, uh, you know, my, my software and everything open off here to the side and show my display in front of me. And, you know, all these things that go into it. I already had the microphones and stuff from podcasting. And so I, I kind of made the calculation that I could justify spending the money, uh, because it, w- again, would feed up into other areas. And so the second time coming on with camera and everything was um, was different. It was a little more, there was a little more investment into it. And I learned a lot by watching other streamers that uh, did tutorials and that kind of thing. And, of course, a lot of it is geared toward gaming. So I kind of had to take what wasn't designed for me and glean what I could from it. But a lot of the wisdom works, you know, the idea of like, you're going to gain followers on Twitch while you're not streaming the stuff you put off on other platforms. Uh, And then the idea that creating content was more important than any of the other stuff you had going on and, and refining and editing what content went on to YouTube. So all those kind of learning things from people outside myself sort of helped me hone what I was doing. The first time I wrote on stream, it was, it was an experiment. I, I did not expect it to become a thing. I was just going to do it. And it, it oddly worked. And then I did it again when I was sort of doing a tribute to an author friend of mine who had passed. And I was just going to write a short story dedicated to him. And that got a lot of attention. And, of course, anything you do, whether it's podcasting or anything else, the more times you do it, the better you get at it. And then that idea of being able to speak out loud while I was typing sort of was my unique it was my unique way of telling you a story while I was writing it. So you could watch it appear on the screen. You could hear it, uh, which, which played into everything that was going on. So sort of developing that um, developing, developing, I guess, from an experiment to a practice um, sort of gave me the opportunity to say, okay, 
I've defined who I am in this space, and now I can sell that to people who may be willing to invest in it. Um, and so that that was kind of um, the growth that went into it. And I don't think it's unlike, completely unlike the experience of other streamers who are primarily doing gaming, which is the focus of the platform and that sort of thing. So what what do you are are these stories like? Do you have a plan for the stories? Like after, I mean, are you planning on like I'm gonna actually you know edit them? Yes. Sell them? Um, it's not just you know experimental. If it works, it doesn't. You know, sometimes it's experimental. Okay. Um, I try to again. I, I try to go fearless into a short story. So something that shouldn't work, I'll still try it. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course there's some, there's some issues in there that I haven't explored deeply yet. Like the fact that I've written it live on stream, I think technically makes it a reprint mm-hmm. no matter where I put it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've kind of leaned into that when I write a story on, on Twitch, I just go ahead and put it up on YouTube. I go ahead and put it over on Patreon. Um, I, I use it to promote and it, it, it builds enough fascination. Like it, it's different enough and, uh, you know, not to, I'm going to toot my own horn a little bit, but even in my first draft, I create a story that's fascinating enough that it draws people's attention. Like it's, it's not perfect, but it's good enough, especially seeing it materialize before your eyes, that people who watch kind of get drawn in. Mm-hmm. And I, I think in some cases they're kind of surprised that this short story is just appearing as opposed to just being some slop that people are putting up there. Right. And I, I'm not talking down on anyone else that's streaming. Um, but I think sometimes I'm putting up a more, a closer to complete piece than a lot of other writers are doing. You know, they're kind of, they'll move up to another point in the story and then move back. And it's kind of an ongoing thing, but creating a short story from beginning to end live before someone's eyes and seeing the beginning, middle and end form, um, is, is kind of a fascinating thing, I think, for a lot of people. And like I said, I've just gotten better at it as I go. Sometimes I have nothing but the title. Like I'll just go in, sit down, and I don't know anything about the story other than the title. Um, now, at the same time, anytime I, you know, I, I know I'm going to be writing the story called this. And I, on the dry erase board, you see behind me, I'll just, I have all my projects up in there. But this, this scrawled madman kind of bottom right corner is when I hear a phrase or something that sticks with me, I'll write it down there as a potential story title. And a lot of times the story idea will then attach to a title, which I'll then use. But I'll put the title down, you know, I'll advertise that that's what I'm going to write about. And then during the day, kind of the pieces of the story, character names and things like that will come together. And then I'll just write it from the title just off the top of my head. Um, other times I do a little more work. Like I, I found it if I, if I go ahead and look up some character names and some street names and some town names and stuff like that, it kind of, um, you know, greases the wheels a little bit to where I'm not getting stuck on something like that. Um, but the best ones I've done are the ones I've gone in cold where essentially I have a title and maybe an idea of what the story will be. Mm-hmm. And then just like during regular writing, you know, you'll be partway through the story and figure out, oh, I think it, I think this is where the story goes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll, I'll actually do that live uh, while people are watching. And then, of course, you know, there's the pressure that, like, you have actual eyes on you. So you can't really have that moment where you just kind of sit there and stare at the screen for a minute and a half. Um, so it, it's it's kind of like ghostwriting in that way where I, I, had, I couldn't pause. I had to just drive through the story until the end. Um, and so I, I think that's where it, it kind of comes together and uh, it, I, I guess, I guess it's the draw of the channel itself is just that, you know, watching, watching the magic and still having it be a little bit of magic, I think. Well, I, I imagine there's, there's some kind of 
accountability almost built in in a weird way, you know, that you're, you're trying to actually tell a good story because you're doing it in public. It's not just you and your, you know, basement. Nobody cares. Nobody's watching. Right. But then it's like, actually want to do well at this or, and, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I, I've, it's funny. One of my evolutions and maybe I, I hear you saying it is like, you try to write that first draft a little cleaner than in previous times. Because I remember when I first, my very first novel, it was such a mess that like, I just wanted to, you know, just throw up and <laughs> give up and, you know, cause it was like, it was almost just too much work to even try to fix the thing. <laughs> so, you know, you realize like there is something to writing better first drafts, you know, where you're actually, you know, whether you're, outline it or pants it doesn't matter but actually try yeah. to write a good story like you're not just going i'm just gonna write some random ideas and just you know subconsciously see what happens but but really you're you're saying hey this actually is is readable like you said it's like it's not perfect it's not done yet but there's something there right um, yeah and i think that's where a lot of writers actually get frustrated is they they give up because they come back to this thing and it's it's just such a mess and it doesn't make any sense. And they're just like, why am I even doing this? You know, kind of, <laughs> kind of almost works against them, but I, I like the pressure of having like someone that's, you know, watching you and, and holding you accountable to that. Um, but, but Jay, I love just the, the idea of experimenting and trying new things. I think that's really important. Um, I think in all of our work and whatever we're doing, um, you know, we can get such a rut and just think, Oh, this is the way you do it. And, um, but you know, just kind of exploring new, new ideas. Um, now when you, um, this I think segues into a lot of what you're writing, you know, short stories, you know, novellas, novels, a Jay Wilburn, Jay Wilburn story. What, what would you say, you know, using a few <laughs> words, what, what, what's in there? I mean, I know there's a lot of cussing, a lot of death, um, <laughs> but you know, other, other than that, um, no, uh, you know, what, what, what is, you know, you're influenced by King. You, you have certain, you know, subjects you're writing about. What would you say is kind of your, your thing? I really don't know. Um, and I would probably know better if I did, if I'd written less. So like, for instance, um, just like going up from age group, I have a, um, I have a middle grades series that's, that's geared a little younger called Lake Scatterwood. And I originally wrote it for my son who was struggling as a reader when he was like middle grades age, uh, and was getting to the age where stuff that he could read easily was not written for him. And so it's a middle grades novel, but it's written to be easier to read for like possibly younger readers or um, struggling readers. So a lot of elementary readers have picked up on that one, even though it's a middle grades novel. And it's just kind of these kids at camp sort of running into monsters. It's campy. Um, there, there is some, some light peril, but it's, it's never anything where you, you actually think that the kids are going to get hurt really. Uh, so I have that series, which is very different from like Vampire Christ, mm -hmm. which is, you know, a political satire and a uh, gory vampire story. Uh, then I have a, a, a firmly middle grades uh, series called uh, Time Travel Academy. And it's these, you know, kids traveling through time trying to fix things. And so it has, you know, actual history in it, but it's, it's written with an eighth grader that's kind of trapped in having to help time travelers. Then I have um, a young adult, Maidens of Zombie Kingdom, which has a little bit more gore in it. And it's zombies and sort of a um, high fantasy sword and sorcery situation. All the characters uh, in it are – all the main characters are female. Um, and that one's done pretty well. It's a complete trilogy. And then you get up into my adult stuff like Dead Song, which is an ongoing zombie series. Uh, very, uh, very rough, uh, you know – very vulgar, 
I would say. Same thing with uh, Vampire Christ. Uh, and then you get up into some other books that I've written, especially ones I've teamed up with on um, with Armand Rosamalia, where we, we we might lean a little bit into crime fiction. Uh, we did a haunted house story. Uh, the w- one we have coming out in April is called Room 138, which is sort of a time travel story uh, where the time travelers don't know why they keep moving through time and they're trying to figure out the mystery of it as they're jumping between times. Um, so, you know, almost genre and, and in some cases style, especially when it comes to age groups, it's, it's very, very different stories. I, I think I have humor in my stories. Um, when, if you just put it up to the adult stuff, uh, I think I didn't realize I was writing extreme horror or spider punk much until like I was nominated for an award for it. Um, and, I didn't realize I was leaning into it. I just thought I was telling a story. And even in some cases, I thought my stuff was pretty mild um, compared to some of the other authors. And even when I was looking at going to KillerCon, which is sort of the extreme horror splatterpunk convention, uh, I planned to go to it before I was nominated for an award there. Mm -hmm. And I actually talked to some people. I said, I think I'm a little off brand. Like, I don't know that I'll fit in very well. They're like, no, no, you're fine. Just come on in. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize that they were commenting on my work. Like I thought they were just saying, no, no, we'll accept you even though you're not one of us kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I I sort of had to realize that, oh, I do write this sort of stuff. Um, So I, it's more of sort of, I guess, a storytelling voice. Like I, I don't know that I could describe what makes a Jay Wilburn story, but I recognize when I'm telling a story in my voice and when I'm, when I'm off, like when I'm just, I don't have the premise yet. Um, and I think it is a little bit of humor. I think it is a little bit of irreverence. Uh, I think, I think it's giving the character some depth. I think that defines what I do a good bit. Uh, I think it's trying to nail dialogue, action and story. Like, delivering on all three of those. So it's not just like, Oh, Jay Wilburn writes good dialogue or he writes good action. Just that like all three of those are there. So that like, if I'm slipping on one or the other, I, I think I'm still carrying the reader through. Um, I do try to write like, even as a person of faith, I think people may see that in my stories from time to time, but I, I tend to, I tend to steer away from it sometimes. Like I don't feel like, Faith doesn't get an automatic invitation in the story. It kind of has to earn its way in. And I think that's the case with a lot of things. I'm more interested, like I feel more successful as an author when I successfully write a character with a viewpoint completely different from mine. Mm -hmm. So if I write that and I write it well and it works on the page, like I feel like I've really, I've really done something. Um, So I don't necessarily, while I, while I carry a personal faith, I don't necessarily make my faith the hero of the story. So the person that believes what I believe could still be the villain. Um, and, and so while I'll even explore some of those, I'm, I may be more interested in exploring how an atheist would deal with the situation or how someone of a different faith or different worldview would, would navigate through this story as opposed to how I, as a person would navigate through the story. Yeah. So what, you know, what, when you think of, I was actually going to ask you that question as far as a, you know, guy of faith, um, you know, you're thinking about horror, you're thinking about, you know, faith gets in there, it gets in there. If it doesn't, it doesn't, if it's more, you know, overt or just kind of on the sidelines, you know, how, how does that factor in just as far as what you are writing or what, you know, is that, is that a conversation? I mean, as far as, you know, how, how gritty does it get? How, you know, is there, a, is there a line I have to draw? Is there no, lines? Right. is there, you know, um, 
what's kind of your, your filter or if you have one, you know, for, for that, or is that just kind of let the story be what it needs to be? Uh, I, I definitely want to try to let the story be what it needs to be. I think again, like everything, everything needs to earn its way in. It doesn't get invited. So I'll write extreme horror and gore, but it has to earn its way in. Mm-hmm. Like if, if um, showing the viscera of a gunshot wound um, is just self-indulgence and not really working for the story, um, I might not do it. Like it, it may be more powerful to have the narrative character turned away while it's happening. So they're only seeing, you know, hints and noise and, and um, the, the periphery of what's going on as opposed to just watching it happen and describing it in medical detail. Mm-hmm. So even in the, the stories where I'll write horror, like sometimes it's interesting to have the character's emotions be, what the scene's about and sort of the, the extras like some of it's almost off camera. And then what's on camera is, is hints and teases. Mm -hmm. So I'll sometimes do that because it's a more powerful way to tell it. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll do stories about faith and about God and about um, church and, and everything else. Uh, But a lot of times, even with that, I'm like, okay, what hasn't been done? What have I never seen before? Mm -hmm. And that, of course that list gets smaller and smaller and more minute the way you go and the stories get stranger and stranger. Um, so the, I like to explore God. Um, I've, I've started to figure out that, that what attracts me to horror is also kind of what connects me to the Bible. So when, um, when I hear the crucifixion described, I see a horror story. And I think that that kind of gets watered down a lot, um, particularly in certain denominations, but I think Christianity broadly, where we got, okay, um, Jesus, like, dying in the most excruciating way ever designed by humanity. Uh, we need to design that story so it fits in a pastel Bible for children, mm-hmm. and it's, it's not quite that. And actually, the word excruciating comes from crucifixion. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's the word originally meant the pain you would feel upon a cross. Mm-hmm. And so we even, we even water down that word where we'll describe things ex- as excruciating that aren't as extreme as a crucifixion. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that idea of, of things being paid for in blood and like the stories that uh, get skipped in the Sunday school quarterlies, like the, the, um, the violence and the chopping people into pieces and all these things that are literally in the Bible uh, that we won't talk about in Sunday school. Um, these are horror stories. Uh, and then just the very nature of God himself, like the fact you can't say his, his real name. You can't look at his face and survive. You can't like, like Moses has to see him when he's passing by. So you're getting a glimpse. Mm-hmm. All of that is cosmic horror. Like that's, that's the unknowable thing. <clears throat> and it's, it's fascinating to, to deal with, with God on the idea of like, there's, there's only so much we as human beings can know about him, even though our calling is to know him, mm-hmm. that there's a limit to what we can know, like what our minds can, can comprehend, what our own bias will let us realize about God, uh, the things we don't like to know, the things we don't want to face about him, uh, the things we don't want to face in ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of that is really powerful story that, um, a lot of people of faith and especially writing of faith just doesn't want to dive into because, uh, there's not a lot of room for ambiguity. There's not a lot of room for, um, the, the number of characters that have gotten angry with God in the Bible and have still been s- described as after God's own heart mm-hmm. is, is countless. And so we, we, um, when we talk about David and when we talk about Paul and we talk about Peter and all these characters, uh, a number of these characters do some pretty gnarly stuff. I mean, you could argue that that St. Paul was a serial killer before 
Yeah. He uh, he was a mass murderer before yeah. he became a Christian. <laughs> yeah. Um, and of course we don't. That's not we touch on it, but we kind of gloss over it. You know the fact that that uh, you know the doors open for these these ne'er do wells. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so again, like when I write anything of faith, when I explore who God is, that's the more interesting bit for me because it's the part that we avoid. It's the, it's the, it's the element of God that we won't look him in his face about, but we'll kind of glimpse out from the cleft of the rock. Um, and, and the, the stories that we don't really understand why they're in the Bible, I find extremely fascinating. If you believe God is who the Bible says he is, then the story we don't understand, the story that doesn't seem to fit, probably tells us more about God than we realize. Um, like one of my favorites, I know I'm, I'm going on a tangent here a little oh, bit, good. but um, like one of my favorite stories from the Bible, one of my favorite parables is the dishonest manager because it's the wrong character. Like the hero of the story is completely wrong. So basically that story is a parable about a guy that figured that's sort of not been a good manager and, and the master's about to fire him. So the guy goes completely dishonest. He goes around and starts forgiving everybody's debts behind his master's back and starts using money to kind of set himself a landing place after he gets fired for cause, essentially. Um, and then the, the master says, oh, I that was shrewd. Uh, I'm going to praise this guy for being for for uh, basically sinning. Um, and so you look at that story and you're like, I don't understand what God's getting at there. But the idea is that like, we're all the dishonest manager. Like we're all like God has picked a bunch of screw ups to bring his will about. And that's us. Mm-hmm. We're, we're the, we're the bad managers that he's chosen to, to run our show. And he's describing all of us and you can match it up to other parables about 11th hour. Like we basically go through our lives, not doing right. Even after we're Christians, even after we're serving God, we're doing a terrible job of it. And then at the last moment, when we realize our time's almost up, we suddenly get serious about him. We suddenly start like trying to work out what's going to happen in the afterlife. We start trying to do something with our lives. And then God says, great, it's about time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like we don't understand the dishonest manager because we don't want to realize that that's who we are. Mm-hmm. That like we've all we're all on borrowed time right now, right. but until we see the pink slip coming, until it's until it's cancer, until we don't breathe real well, until um, you know suddenly our friends around us start dying and we realize oh we're getting old. That's the moment that that we start um, start making accounts right. We start being more grace, having more grace. We start mm-hmm. cutting debts. We start doing all those things that we should have been doing from hour one. Um, I, I love those kind of stories because people don't get them. Like they, they're so antithetical to what we think Christianity should be. And like all the answers about faith are in there. They're in the part that we don't want to read. We don't want to think about that. That doesn't work in the pastel version of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I write a horror story, I'm looking for that uncomfortable bit. And especially when I explore God, I want to explore the God of the book of Job that we really don't like. We don't like that guy that makes, makes bets with the devil over how much we can take. Like that's not, that's not the God we want, want to deal with. And uh, looking, looking at the God that would, um, would uh, deal with someone like David, like all the, like David's one of the most bloody, unredeemable characters in the Bible and God redeems them anyway. And so we look at David as sort of this figure that's after God's own heart, but we don't realize that going after God's own heart includes all this other stuff that, that we don't like to talk about with right. David. So um, I, I'm not sure how well my 
horror lands with 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 a solid Christian audience just because I like the pieces of the Bible that we don't like to talk about, I think. Well, and and I always joke, it's like, we, you know, the Bible's, you know, R rated. I mean, those stories, like they're stories you can't, you barely tell your kids. I mean, everyone loves the story of Noah, but they don't talk about, you know, the time he's drunk in the tent, you know, it's like, that's (laughs) like Noah got drunk and flashed his family. Like that's, that's not included in the song. How come that my children's Bible? That's not, you know, (laughs) it's it's all the ark and you know, they're saved and you know, all that. Um, but no, you're right. And I, I was thinking the other day about just how much humor is in the Gospels where Jesus is, I mean, he's a, he, he's a satirist in many ways. I mean, he, he says, Hey, it's easier for the, you know, for a, you know, camel to get through the eye of, eye of a needle than, you know, for a rich man to get in heaven. Now that's not a slam on people having money, but he's just saying, think about how ridiculous it is if we, you know, worship money and that's all we think about. And that's, I mean, it's, it's just humor. It's like humor to backdoor truth to say like, don't be an idiot. Like, of course we know, like we all know that like deep in our bones, like that doesn't go anywhere. Like if we're just, that's all we run after. It's like, well, you can't serve two masters. Yeah, of course. Like that's, that's humor. Like that's, that's, we try, but the irony is like, it never works. Right. It's, it's always, right. you're going to give allegiance over to one or the other. And, and there's these, I mean, great little Jewish jokes in, in the Bible all over the place that Jesus just uses to kind of disarm you. You know, I mean, the parable, like you said, the parables are just amazing. And, and how, you know, and I mean, the story of the prodigal son, it's like that story. I mean, the j- religious leaders are standing there going like, wait a minute, the, the kid who, you know, s- squandered the inheritance, he gets a party. But the whole right. story is about the, really about the older brother because he right. had everything the whole time. And yet he's complaining, how come my brother gets all this stuff? And I've been here the whole time. He's like, everything I have is yours. What are you complaining about? You know, um, and it's a scandalous story because he's he's kind of pushing on the audience to let them respond to there's no, you know, the ending's terrible. Cause you don't, you don't really know. Okay. How does this end? And it's kind of like pointing the finger at us. Like, yes, hey, this, this thing of grace, it's already yours. Like why don't squander the inheritance? You know, the, the reason we don't understand Christianity is because we don't know which character we are in the story. <laughs> right. Like we think we're the guy that takes the guy off the ground and puts him in a hotel and takes care of him. <laughs> right. We're the guys that walk around on the side. And that's why the story got told to us. Yep. So like as a Christian, I'm not going to get political here, but as, yep. as Christians, when we look at current events and we look at how we handle ourselves and especially when we try to tie Christianity, which is completely antithetical to human nature, we try to tie it to a political set of beliefs. And then we can't understand why it doesn't work. You know, that idea of serving two masters. Mm -hmm. If you have a political identity and a a faith identity, they're not going to line up. And one of them's going to have to lose. And it's almost always faith. Mm -hmm. And it's because we don't know which character we are in the story. We don't realize that the people in, in everyday life that we walk around as the undesirables are the person on the ground and we're the religious person walking around the side Mm -hmm. and we're not the, the guy that stops. Um, and at the same time, the story of the prodigal son, we're the, we're the crappy older brother uh, who doesn't accept people back in. Uh, we're, not, we're not the prodigal son that came back. That's, that's us watch, That's the people we judge. Uh, so like all these stories, uh, we, can't, we don't understand where they're bad guy. Mm-hmm. And Jesus even, even warns us when we – I think one of the lines that's, that's very rarely quoted from the Bible that describes why we don't get Jesus as much as we think we do – is when he was talking to the Pharisees and he said, he, he kind of said a, a little rhyme of um, uh, you're, you're like children in the marketplace who play a flute and get mad that I won't dance. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that is one of the, the coldest lines in the Bible, uh, because whether we identify with the political party, whether we identify with the Jesus we think of when we don't bother reading the Bible, we're the children in the marketplace playing a flute and don't understand why Jesus won't dance for us. Uh, we try to fit him into a box that works with our intuition and matches up to, to our personal beliefs, when really Jesus is the guy that calls us the bad guy. And then we have to either choose to accept that or not. Uh, that's not the Jesus we like. We want, we like the one that says we're just as good as the way we are uh, because we don't understand that Jesus identifies with the guy on the ground. Like the, the guy Jesus identifies with in the story of the, of the Samaritan is the guy beaten down on the ground. So if you're ever looking for what side Jesus is on, it's probably not yours. You need to look and see who's on the ground. Mm-hmm. Who is on the ground, and that's who Jesus cares about. That's the person he identifies with. Um, that's the person when when he when Jesus says I was hungry and you fed me I was I was homeless and you gave me a place to stay um when you see someone on the ground Jesus is feeling what that guy feels that's the guy Jesus identifies with and then we're either going to be the one that walks around the side or we're going to be the one that helps but the story was told to us because we're most likely to be the guy who walks around mm-hmm. um and I think I think that's where we we miss out a lot on um, as Christians. I think it's why Christianity's Christians don't know what to do with the LGBT community. I think it's why we don't know what to do uh, when our political leaders don't line up with our faith. I think it's why we don't know what to do about refugees. Mm-hmm. It's why we don't know what to do uh, about the homeless. It's why we don't know what to do um, about people who are different from us. It's because we don't, we don't identify who we are on the ground and we don't get who Jesus sides with. Um, when, when we apply ourselves into a story. Mm-hmm. Preach it, man. Yes. Pre- <laughs> Preacher Jay is getting after it. Uh, no, I appreciate that. And, you know, and, and I think for me, like when I, I shared some of my faith story with you before, but you know, th- that Jesus resonated with me because I was the, the you know teenager that was, you know, on drugs and a mess. And, and here's this Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. And, and I'm just going, how can this God be like this? Like he, it seems like he's hanging out with the wrong people because I've been told my whole life, you know, there's good people and bad people and, you know, God's only with the good people. And yet you realize there's nobody good. You know, what does you know, Paul say? There's nobody good, not even one. And so they are the people on the ground. They are the ones that, you know, Jesus sides with. It's, it's the social outcast. It's the unpopular kid. It's the, you know, and, and, and yet somehow our message has got gotten twisted into, you know, it's the powerful, it's the one in positions of, you know, authority and, and things like that. Um, no, and I, and I think that's, uh, you know, when we think about storytelling and we think about, you know, the books we're writing, those stories do resonate because I think when we're honest and you, especially when you get older, you do realize you are weak and broken and don't have it all together. And, you know, when you're young and you have it full of energy and you just think, I think that's just kind of human nature. Like we just think we're fine. We're good. Right. But then when right. you go through suffering, you lose a child dies, you get, you know, your kidneys fail, whatever it is, you begin to realize like, man, how much we do need grace and how much we do need, how, how we are the one laying on the ground, really. Um, I love that. I'm going to steal that phrase. Um, <laughs> so, so Jay, um, you know, you are a, obviously a prophet. That's very obvious. Um, uh, a prophet oh, of what's, what's coming, what's the future is going to look like. Uh, but, you know, when you think about writing in the future specifically, I know we've talked a lot about writing uh, on this episode. Um, anything that you, you kind of, 
you know, any inklings, any impressions, any, um, you know, I know you're experimenting with different, different things, but when you think about, um, I've been thinking about, you know, is, is our books just going away? Is that not a thing? People don't read anymore. What's the point, you know, kind of stuff, or is it really just storytelling will always be there? It's just a matter of maybe it's a different medium, but anything you think when you look to the future, like, um, as far as literature, writing, storytelling, does it look different? Does it look the same? What's coming around the corner? Yeah, I think I, I don't buy that books disappear like that. That is the least likely outcome of anything that happens. Like even the apocalypse hitting, uh, I think the least likely outcome for writing is that physical books disappear. Sure. Uh, I would say the same for eBooks. Um, I think the, uh, the big change, and of course you, you run into how ridiculous you're going to sound when we listen back to this five, 10, 20 years from now, <laughs> That's all right. um, inevitably. But uh, I think the difference is going to be the mediums by which storytelling is conveyed and by which the, the financial return comes through. Uh, so, again, I, I think it always comes back to the business side because, of course, um, you, you, you're only going to make so much money telling stories around a campfire, uh, but it still happens. But, it, of course, I think it's the delivery system. So I think the live streaming elements um, – which I think have been embraced more with the pandemic when conventions had to go virtual and things like that. I don't know how much that lasts once we get back into, um, back into normal life when, um, you know, coronavirus is like the flu again or something like that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I do think delivery systems different. So like with live streaming, with Patreon, uh, with subscription models, um, the, the models that, that line up with streaming services, the way we consume other media, uh, there's, there's a certain disadvantage that the written word, uh, has over visual mediums, uh, when it comes to delivery like that. And then, you know, changing that into, to income. But then there's also a, um, a, an advantage the written word has, uh, to outlive us. Uh, to be revered, to be quoted, um, to, to define generations, um, in a way that like, you know, it's, if I do a Facebook post on something I believe in, it, it's going to be gone. It, it's going to sit there forever, but it's going to be forgotten. Uh, whereas books can be remembered for generations and generations and generations. And I think that's going to be true of ebook forms. I think it's going to be true of, um, stories delivered through other medium and stuff like that. So I think the the methods of delivery are changing for all media. Uh, but I think that um, typically the, the written word lags. So um, whatever somebody figures out in, in a certain area, um, I think I, I'm going to be a little crude here, but anything that you figure out, uh, pornography is going to get there early and writing is going to get there late. Mm-hmm. So that's true of video. That's true of streaming. That's true of everything. Uh, so you have, you know, your innovators up on the front end. Actually, it's it's the Bible and pornography that lead the way. So if you go all the way back to the Gutenberg Press, mm-hmm. it, it it paid for itself through the Bible, but it wasn't long before the lewd was was taking advantage of it too and that's true of everything so the the sacred and the profane kind of get there first and then the written word kind of lags behind and kind of figures out how it fits in so it was it was true of podcasting it was it was true of all that stuff and so then writers kind of drug into it late uh and, and it's the same with just about any medium so i think it's just that matter of of how we consume the ways that you see that you consume visual media now uh 
writing is going to slowly work into those areas. And then there'll be something new beyond that, that um, the visual gets to first and then writing will, will follow into that medium. So I think what next, what's next is you look at like the Netflix and uh, Disney plus and all those streaming services now that they've diversified out from just being Netflix. And I think you see that that subscription model is probably going to be, um, there's some writers that are never going to get into it. There's some writers that still can't handle the fact that eBooks sell so well. Like they, they haven't embraced that and they're still kind of mad about it. They feel like these, <laughs> these new writers have kind of moved into their space right. and the same is going to be true about everything else when streaming and, and uh, the subscription models through Patreon and stuff like that become a primary source of income for a lot of authors. Mm-hmm. Um, there's going to be a ton of authors already who, who feel like it's cheating. It doesn't really count. You're not really writing. And then other people are making money while they're lamenting that that their share of the market is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking mm-hmm. um so i kind of see that being being what's next um and a lot of times i try to i try to look and see where other medias are going like in this case it was gaming that i was kind of uh seeing what they were doing and why it was working and then saying okay what's the what's the unnatural translation of that to to what i do mm-hmm. um so I, I guess that's my best guess of what's next sure. Yeah, I've been curious, you know, I, I noticed James Patterson's doing these like book shots, you know, they're kind of these short 150 page kind of quick reads. And I, I think his whole thing is, you know, people just aren't, don't have the attention span to read, you know, 400 page novel. And I think that, I think on some level that might be it too. It's whether it's print, whether it's ebook, whether it's audio, but just, you know, stuff people can listen to on the train, read on the train, on their phone, you know, short bursts, people don't have, you know, nine hours to, to dig in. I think that's interesting to me too. Um, I, th- I think we, um, I think we underestimate that a lot and we've had a habit of doing it before because people were saying that before the Harry Potter series came out right. and all the conventional wisdom was like, you know, and it, it still is that uh, works for young readers need to be short, but then they're buying these 800 page books and eating them up. Um, so I, I think, I, th- I think you get into risky territory if you try to make that your model, uh, especially as an unknown author. Yeah. But um, I think every time we think, well, that's over, yeah. you're going to find the guy that's like, oh, nobody's doing this anymore. Right. Let me take up all that market. So yeah. um, I, I, <laughs> we call them bloated books, but I think uh, I don't think that ever goes away. It's in like every trope too, you know, zombies and werewolves and everything else. It's that's always going to be dead at some yeah. point it'll always come back around to somebody that figures out, okay, I think it's time again, you know, and then they'll move into it. And isn't it funny? A lot of the writers that have been around for 30, 40, 50 years, they all say, just write what you want to write because the minute you, you know, try to write what's hot, what's it's going to be gone. You know, right. I I forget. I was reading just recently. um, uh, I think Kuntz, Dean Kuntz, he was talking about that. He's like, just write the story you want to write. Cause if you just run after markets, he's like, it's going to be over already. So yeah, might as well just write this, you know, that's, that's the, the illusion, I guess. Um, so Jay, you have given me a lot of your time and I, uh, even apologize for that, but you had a lot. No, of no, it's fine. It's been fun. You're a good talker. So, um, <laughs> I like that. I don't, I don't want to talk. I want to hear the guests. So, uh, but tell us, uh, what you're working on and also where we can find you. All right. Um, the Vampire Christ trilogy, two of those books are out, and book three is out. It's political and religious satire um, set against current events. And just basically, it's the idea of like, okay, if everything that was going on 
uh, was because of vampires, what would that look like? And so uh, actually all the strangeness in life kind of makes more sense if you believe in vampires. So I, I kind of played that book out and I'm working on the final book now, which will come out later this year. Um, the next book I have coming out is probably going to be in April. It's Room 138 that I co-wrote with uh, Armand Rosemelia, and that's coming out with Madness Art Press. Uh, the pre-release should be around, or the pre-order uh, should be around in March. And um, it's a time travel story, kind of a mystery. Uh, characters that understand they're time traveling for a purpose but don't know why and finding each other and trying to figure it out. And, of course, there will always be dark forces after them and controlling them and all that sort of thing. I think it's I, I have a feeling it's one of our better novels, and I, I, I have high hopes for it doing well. Uh, something unusual, t- talking about coming up with new ways to do things. Uh, Armand and I, the next thing we're going to write and that we're working on now is uh, a story called Split Between, and it's going to be appear on both our Patreon pages. So um, I'm writing uh, chapters from one character's perspective. He's writing chapters from another character in the same story. And uh, on the 1st of May, the first chapter, my chapter, will go up. And on the 15th of May, um, his his first chapter, chapter two, uh, will go up on his Patreon page on the 15th. And so those first couple chapters will be free and a few more after that. And then it'll kind of go behind the paywall. And uh, you can read either one. So you can go to patreon.com slash Jay Wilburn, or you can go to patreon.com slash Armand Rosamelia. And if you just read my chapters of the story, the story will make sense and be worth it. If you just read his chapters, it'll be worth it. Uh, but if you want the full experience, you can pay each of us a dollar a month uh, and get everything else we put on Patreon, but you can get both halves of the story. Uh, so we're going to give you uh, three, four, five, six, seven chapters uh, to, to really hook you in. And then you can decide if you want to go behind the paywall. But again, sort of a new way of telling a story. And um, it, I don't want to say a lot about it, but it's it's a couple um, that's kind of in two different places uh, emotionally, and then they kind of get split up uh, by some supernatural forces in their in their town, and kind of have to decide how to survive, whether they're getting back together, how they're going to do that, um, and of course each character kind of has a different perspective on on what's happening, what they actually know, and that kind of thing. So, um, so a traditional book coming out in April, and uh, sort of a different format for a story coming out on Patreon in May. I love it. I love it. Well, Jay, Jay, thank you so much for coming on. It's always a great interview. I love, always love your perspective. Love what you're trying out and throwing out the wall and experimenting. Yeah. I think it's, it's great. And uh, all the best to you, brother. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on. Well, there you go, folks. Jay Wilburn. Go check out his website. Go get all his stuff. Check out his YouTube channel. Check out his Twitch. That sounds a little strange, but you know what that is. Uh, check out all his books. Uh, see what he's up to. He's just constantly writing all kinds of stuff. So thank you, Jay, for stopping by the show, sharing your wisdom, sharing your perspective on calling and creativity and, and how to write through the pain as well. And so I've always loved talking to Jay for that reason, uh, because he really motivates me, encourages me, inspires me to that, that things are going to happen in life. Things aren't going to always go smoothly. Things are going to be difficult, but how do we continue to navigate that, continue to get our stories, our work, uh, our voice, our messages out into the world? So thank you, Jay, for coming on the show. And before we leave, uh, just a couple things. Hey, if you could leave a review or rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show, that would really help us out. Much appreciated. Apparently, that helps get the show out there to more folks. We want to keep doing that. Um, Also, today... 
Um, our show is officially sponsored by me, uh, RyanJPelton.com. You can go to our website, check out uh, some of our free tools, sign up for the newsletter, get all the information there, check out some of my own writings and things. Uh, so you can go check that out. We don't have any official sponsors, just the website. So there you go. Um, but go check that out. Love to encourage you in that way, help you in any way, whatever you're stuck with, whatever you're challenged with. Hopefully there'll be some things that can, can move you along. And also, please, if you'd like two things. One is if you email me at hello at ryanjpelton.com, hello at ryanjpelton.com. It's also on the website. Uh, I'd love to hear what you're working on. Any way I can help you um, say hello, say, tell me what you're, what you're up to. And then secondly, if, if you have someone in mind that you'd love for me to interview uh, a writer, a creator, a business owner, entrepreneur, someone starting a ministry, starting a nonprofit, um, doing interesting work in the world, um, please let me know. I'd love to interview them. I'd love to talk with them and uh, so that you can be encouraged uh, by them as well. Uh, so do those things. That'd be awesome. And uh, so glad that you stopped by the show, The Prolific Creator. Uh, this is your host, Ryan J. Pelton, signing off. And I just ask that you do one thing, go make great art with your life. And I'll talk to you real, real soon.